welcome to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. Um, it's good for me to be back. I was out last week. I just wanted to personally thank Andy for uh, work. Now, I didn't say that, but for uh, getting us a preacher for Kevin Millard from Brazil and, and so forth. Fortunately, he didn't break out into Portuguese like he was worried about. In any case, uh, I was able to tune in and see it online. And I do want to thank you for arranging that hey, and Janet, for. Janet Christoph did it. Okay. Thanks, Janet, then. And, uh, and then you following up the coordination. In any case, that was good to have somebody anchored in truth with us. Well, you can invite him back then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I already, I'm already starting behind because I'm doing the announcements today. I was like, I hope I get done by noon just with the announcements. So we'll see how that goes. I've been out resting, so I've got a lot to say now. In any case, look in your worship folder, and uh, there are a couple things of note. One is the Fall Fellowship. It's at the uh, Nelson Reformation ranch is that what it is does that work for you he's he's tolerable puts up with me hey we had a great time of fellowship so be sure to respond oh reformation farms i'm sorry and here it is at gmail.com respond to blake and his family they hosted us last year it was really great uh and this year uh, we're going to um, make some cookies and i know the judge personally so make them well and uh, we will uh, test them to see who makes the best cookie. In any case, we'll have a great time of fellowship. I encourage you to be a part of that. Put that on your schedule. And then next week, we're going to have our fellowship lunch. And Naomi, we were sitting at a table at my house, you, me, and Isaac, I think. And we came up with this idea. We think it's great. Food on a stick. Naomi got a notepad and began to write. And before long, we had 50 items on a stick. You just think about it, right? You could put cheese on a stick. You could put a hot dog on a stick. Um, I guess you could get, put steak on By the way, you could put cookie on a stick. <laughs> now, the only one we had trouble with was water. You can do that, but... Maybe you want to use a straw and just put that in it. But in any case, you can see Naomi if you need ideas on how to do that. But we thought that would be a lot of fun, and I hope you can join us for the fellowship and fun next week for that. A popsicle frozen water with a little sugar in it. There you go. All right. Now, um, oh, one other thing, too, Andy and Gail and... Whoever else helped with this, I forgot. Gail? All right. Well, it's good. This is in the back. You can look for it. This is for children that are in the service. It's, it's, a, it's a way to keep up with what's going on. We have some of these in the back. And so uh, grab one of those. It's Kids Sermon Notes. And I think you'll find it helpful. Another church uh, prepared this for us and gave it to us, and we appreciate that. And we'll have some of those in the back. All right, now the real reason I'm up here for the announcements was for this. See, it just takes me a long time. But next week, we have two Sunday school hours for adults, 
We call it the ministry training class. Ministry training class. And we have two of them next week. One of them is on biblical doctrines. It's essentially going to go through our doctrinal statement and use one section of it. And this, uh, for the next, I guess, eight weeks or so, it's on salvation. This is going to be based on the systematic theology from John MacArthur. It's, it goes along with our uh, doctrinal statement. Systematic just simply means topical. We're talking about salvation. Henry's leading that. He actually started the class today as far as an introduction. We, meaning Andy, is go are going to email you a note about that, including an outline for the next nine weeks. I think following that, Gordon's going to do a series on Jonah. We're looking forward to that. That's at 945, meeting in the fellowship hall. This fall, if, if you don't regularly come, I encourage you to consider being a part of it. It's going to be really great. It's going to be helpful. And to help you to prepare for it, if you don't have one of these resources, this textbook here, I will give you one. I gave one out this morning already, who I saw came to the class who didn't have one. I want you to have one. This way you can read ahead, be prepared for the discussion. Uh, Henry won't be able to go over every aspect. But we hope this will encourage you to be further equipped for the ministry. What's the ministry that you're involved in? To make disciples of all people. And how do you do that? You teach them. Teach them all that Christ has taught us. And how are you going to learn that? Well, it is in his word that we're going through. So but we hopefully this will help facilitate. So if you haven't been a part before and come as much as you can and each section that we do, it'll, it'll, be, it'll stand alone on its own, so if you can't make it to every one, that's fine. But I want to encourage you to do so. Also, I'll be leading at the same time in the little cottage next door a class on parenting. And I was asked to do this, so um, not because I have great parenting wisdom, but uh, I'm going to help facilitate that, and we're going to use the curriculum from Shepherding a Child's Heart. Uh, it's critical. It's one thing to help change the behavior of a child, but if that's all you do, you really miss the mark. What we want to do is change the heart. And I, I was encouraged because I was asked to do this, and so we'll send out an email to give you some direction on that, and the procedure on that simply uh, it doesn't. It won't cost you anything. You can. We'll have a link for 12 video resources, or you could listen to it as audio. You could even speed it up if you like, or listen to multiple times. But to prepare for the class, and in the class we'll have a discussion. I'll send out notes to take, and so you can do the pre-work this week ahead of time to prepare for the class. So you can have an open mind, think about what's being said, discuss it, and I'll help with that discussion. You may have some pros and cons about what's being said. Well, as a group, we want to discuss that to, together to help encourage you. Um, I thought, and just to plagiarize a little bit, I have a dream. At this stage in my ministry, I have a dream. I have a dream that every child will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. I pray for that daily. 
And many of you have joined in that ministry to pray that every child would confess Jesus Christ as Lord. These children that within our community can learn much from us to be encouraged by our example and by the way in which we, in the homes, teach the word of God to these children and pray that God will change their hearts, that they would truly know Christ. Can you imagine a church that has full of young folks that grow up that are rooted in the foundation of God's word, that are regenerate, that bear fruit of repentance, of joy, of peace, of love, of self-discipline. That's a church growth strategy in and of itself, isn't it? And could you imagine, and I know some of you young folks are going to move off and away. We have interstates now and easy way to travel. I wish you all would stay here forever. But I know some will. And they'll flourish. And my time won't be here forever. It'll be a time for me to pass on. And I want to see it passed on to the next generation and the generation beyond that. That the light of God's glorious grace will shine even brighter in the days. I, I could imagine these young People, even within our midst, some of them getting married and having children and doing the very same thing. This is an incredibly important task. So continue to pray in that regard. For parents who have the children under your immediate care, we want to be an encouragement to you in this process. And it is a process. <laughs> it's a long and difficult one. We want to come alongside of you to the degree we can. I also want to thank those people that have volunteered to work during that Sunday school hour in the nursery and to teach the children. I think Linda stepped up to take a class so that one of the parents can be a part of this 12-week program. And I think Sharon volunteered to help some with the nursery. We need more. And so I encourage you to come. Coordinate with Catherine on that so that more people can be involved in uh, the parenting uh, class, and that more people can actually be involved in our doctrine class as well. So uh, uh, check with Catherine on that as far as the care of the children, and I pray that you also will dream of God's glorious grace to be manifested here in even brighter ways in the days to come. All right, let's go ahead and begin our service with the reading of the Gospel of Christ. I think Andy is coming to read a selection for us, and then we'll open in prayer. This is from John chapter 4. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast, so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. 
the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word, the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came down from Judea to Galilee. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let me give you a moment privately to prepare your own heart, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let us pray. Father, we come to you gathered together as your people to worship your holy name. We're thankful for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh, to live among us, to do great work, signs, demonstrating, indeed, the glorious grace of who you are, and bringing to us redemption in him. You hear the words, you will live. What a great truth for those who truly know they're worthy of death. I pray that you will, through the power of your spirit, remind us once again of our condition before you. In our natural state, rebellious, but you have granted to us redemption in Christ Jesus our Lord and raised us up from death to life that we can live truly in Christ. What a great joy and privilege that we have for those that are in Christ and truly know the blessings that we have in him. I pray, Father, that that would be sufficient enough, not only in our own life, to provide great security, a lack of anxiety, great confidence and courage and hope. But beyond that, I pray that it would overflow into the lives of others. I pray that concept of, of who you are in, in all that you have done would not fall lightly on our minds, but be of great, of great thought daily. I pray, Father, that it would overflow into the lives of others as we demonstrate both grace and mercy, certainly unmerited by those that we might give it, and certainly we are unworthy to grant it. But you have made us worthy in Christ, and it is through the power of the Spirit that we can indeed exercise those great gifts to others. I pray, Father, for the joy of the Lord truly to be ours. May we, in our songs that we sing to you, may you, you hear them as a father would hear a child. May it be a blessing to you and a delight to us. I pray, Father, that you will give us insight into your holy word, that we might indeed hear and heed what Christ would say to the church even this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
good morning. Let's take our hymn books and stand and let's sing this morning. Started with number 506, In Christ Alone, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will put my hope in him. 506, Christ Alone.
Today's scripture reading will be from Psalms 130 and 131, which begin on page 518 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, it was the Puritan John Owen who convinced me to be excited about the eight verses in Psalm 130 as one of those places where glimmers of the gospel burst forth uh, even in the Old Testament. Uh, he wrote a book on these eight verses. It was actually several hundred uh, pages long. And what would keep John Owen up at night was this one word that's a conjunction in verse 4, here translated, but. Because we know with, uh, with the gospel, we say you need to give the bad news before the good news. And that bad news is there in verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Then the good news in verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. And John Owen would ask the question, how did he know? How did the, the psalmist know? And Pastor Wayne has taught us before that you can't get to the gospel from natural theology. Natural theology is when you don't have the Bible. You just observe the world and think about it and use logic and philosophy. Uh, you tried to, st John Owen would strain with this. Uh, what if we look at the world, observe there must be a God that created, he must be powerful, he must be glorious, he must be glorious in other ways. He must want to show his glory, so he must judge sinners so we could see his, the glory of his uh, righteousness. He must forgive sinners so we could see, but it gets, so we could see the glory of his mercy. But that really strains it, because with uh, Romans 1, we're responsible, but we can't know the gospel unless uh, it is given to us, unless God reveals himself to us. The, and it's kind of silly to think that the psalmist would go to some philosophy class. So how would he know? I mean, if you look at the angels the f that fell, there was no forgiveness for them. So how could he say, but with you there is forgiveness? Because uh, this is a psalmist that is uh, singing to uh, Yahweh, the God that has revealed himself to uh, his people. There is this good news of animal blood, where with, uh, in the garden uh, there was a sacrifice. In the days of the patriarchs, the Lord will provide a sacrifice. In the original Passover, there was a lamb for the doorpost of their homes. So, but with you, there is forgiveness. And even depending on when this is written, the psalmist may or may not have access to Jeremiah. I will make a new covenant that will not be like the covenant I made with her forefathers, for I will forgive their sins. Amen. And uh, let's, this is the word of God. Psalm 130. ESV title, My Soul Waits for the Lord, a song of ascents. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Psalm 131, ESV title, I have calmed and quieted my soul. A song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. 
I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of all glory and honor and power, and your Son is worthy of all glory and honor and power. And while we long for the day that your Son will return, even today it is fitting and appropriate that we would worship you and ascribe glory to you and ascribe glory to your Son. We pray uh, that you would be glorified in the proclamation of your word, in your people coming together in spiritual songs and hymns to you. And we pray that you would be glorified in the giving and the offering. And we pray that you would be glorified in uh, the gospel message that will go forth in Chattanooga and to the ends of the earth. Um, We pray that you would mark us as intercessors, as, as watchmen on the wall, whether or not we're in that metaphorical pit. But from the depths we cry out to you, O Lord, from the depths of our sin, from the depths of a decaying culture that would corrupt our children and train them up in a uh, rebellion against uh, God and the suppression of the knowledge of you, O God. And from from the depths we uh, cry out to you for uh, mercy and to build your church. So we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.
take our hymns books once more and stand and turn to number 603. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus, sing his mercy and his grace. When we all get to heaven, number 603. but a person. I'm glad that song emphasized that. That's where your rejoicing will be in seeing the fullness of Jesus Christ. And in his presence is fullness of joy beyond what you could imagine or think. We're going to turn our attention this morning to the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 2. Focus this morning will be on verses 14 and 16. The book of Hebrews, as I've mentioned before, I see it as a sermon. 
And the theme of which is really, if you want to say it briefly, the big idea is the supremacy of that one, Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 1 opens with seven dogmatic statements concerning the excellency of who he is, his nature, his character. It's followed by seven Old Testament references expanding and elaborating on that very theme, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, if you remember, opened then with a warning passage. How are we going to escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He's speaking of the magnitude of the person, nature, and mediatorial work of Jesus Christ, our Savior, God incarnate. This idea of the supremacy of Jesus, of course, is woven throughout the fabric of this sermon, and we have it broken down in chapters. That's how we have organized this material. But just a quick overview, chapter 3, brothers then are made holy by that Holy One, Jesus Christ, and they're called to consider this one who is indeed a faithful priest of our confession. In chapter 4, we are then to hold fast to that confession that Jesus Christ is Lord by remembering indeed his work, the high priest who is seated at the majesty on high. In chapter 5, we're reminded once again that this mediatorial work of Jesus Christ, the supreme, excellent one, is one who continues forever and ever and ever. Not just today, not just for tomorrow, it is forever he intercedes. Chapter 6, Jesus then is called our steadfast anchor because he's gone on before us. He is a forerunner, an anchor for our soul. Chapter 7, he is a guarantor of a better covenant. Better in the sense it is a completed, final covenant, the new covenant. He's able to save to the uttermost because he always makes intercession. He lives forever. The thematic theme really summarized is in chapter 8, and I'll read it for you. Now, the point that we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, the true tent that the Lord has set up, and not man. In chapter 9, this Jesus is referred to again as one who enters into the holy place on our behalf, by means of his own blood to secure our eternal redemption. In chapter 10, we then have confidence then to stand before God, full assurance of faith, because of our hearts have been sprinkled by clean from an evil conscience by that one who is excellent, Jesus Christ. In chapter 11, as it explains, he is the substance, the source, and the object of our faith. So in chapter 12, we look for and to Jesus Christ, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Chapter 13, as it finishes, then we have peace for those that are in Christ. We have peace of God who brought 
again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, and are equipped with everything good to do his will, because he is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, and to him be glory forever and ever. And God's people said, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Could I encourage you to spend some time and look at his excellency and glory in the book of Hebrews? It appears that the first hearers of this message, and perhaps some even today, admittedly, we don't fully perceive the magnitude of the person, work, and nature of Jesus Christ. If we're honest, our own thoughts, much of the time, fall woefully short of that as well. Confess and look to Jesus. It is significantly important in your life, one of the most important aspects of your life is simply, as Paul would tell the church at Corinth, to behold him. We, with an unveiled face, that is, those who have been born again, regenerate, are now can perceive and look to Jesus Christ and beholding this glory of the Lord, then we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is the dynamic work of God's Word to those who are regenerate. And if you see Jesus and it doesn't really mean much to you, pray, oh Lord, show me your glory. He will. The means by which this is accomplished is the Holy Spirit revealing trans, this transforming work of the glory through his very word. This is why from the very beginning when you showed up to even now and the very end, this service will be saturated with his word. We will scatter it out, if you will, and pray that the Holy Spirit will work in your heart to see the glory of Jesus Christ. One of the stumbling blocks for the Jews in seeing the glory of Christ, his excellency, his supremacy, in the idea of his incarnation. Jesus would be the term that would mostly describe him taking on human flesh. And the question would be in the back of their mind and perhaps even some today, how could he be supremely glorious if he has a human nature, a nature which is subject to death? Well, in verses 9 through 13, in this chapter 2, the author gives nine reasons for this incarnation, and we've detailed that in previous messages. Today, we're going to look at just three more, because nine isn't enough. You need more, and there will be more to follow, by the way. Did I just overview the whole book? Yeah, it's about Jesus. 14 and 16, however, will be our focus today. We'll read it in its context, if you will. But this section here points to the necessity of Jesus, God, 
taking on human flesh. It redounds to blessings to us and a demonstration of his glory. Let's read it in its immediate context, and I'll just begin in verse 14 and read through verse 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that you bless the reading of your word. Bless with insight from your Holy Spirit. <coughs> Bring to life any that are dead in trespasses and sin and rejuvenate us for those that are truly regenerate to see the glory of Jesus Christ. May it be empowering today. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Andy wanted me to quit at noon. That's not going to happen, but I'll see what I can do about getting in all three of my points if I don't go and wax eloquent too much in each one, but I'm going to attempt to show you, if you'll notice the text here, these three reasons, they're they're additional, they're not the only, but they're ones that are emphasized here in 14 and 16 for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And each concept is incredibly important. If you'll notice verse 14, I would describe that as it is in order to, note the text, destroy the works of the devil. This transcendent God takes on human flesh in order to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 15, not only destroy the works of the devil, but also deliver the doomed from death who are fearful of death. Notice the song and the hymn we sang, no fear in death, you should fear God that many fear death, and we'll discuss that if I can. And then verse 16, notice this. It is this union with the descendants of Abraham. I would say it it is he takes on human flesh, God incarnate, to dwell with the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Destroy, deliver, dwell with. Let's look at the first one here in verse 14. To destroy the works of the devil. Notice the, the phraseology that is, is made here. He, he takes on this human flesh and blood. He partakes of the same things. And he gives the reason to destroy the one who has the power of death. And if you're not sure who it is, it's identified specifically the devil. Jesus shares in human flesh, in humanity. 
to destroy the works of the devil. In order to do so, he must identify with mankind. Notice the phrases that are used. Share in flesh and blood, and parallel that with partook of the same things, that is, the same experiences. Both of these phrases point to the necessity of Jesus taking on human nature. This sharing means to truly take on humanity. God takes on this creaturely form. The infinite God takes on the finite humanity and in and of itself, this flesh and blood as it's described, it, it's not an apparition. You know, he, he truly takes on flesh and blood and he partakes in the same kinds of things that we do in this life. It's that, that taking and partaking here is it's with its weaknesses and its frailties. This flesh and blood emphasizes the temporal nature of mankind, which is subject to disease and ultimately death. It describes our need then in humanity to, as we partake in the world in which we live to grow and to mature. And there is a sense of change. This, again, is just beyond your, uh, our, our imagination that, a, that an infinite God would take on finite mankind. Paul describes this in a little greater detail in looking to Christ and calling for the church to take on humility as God did in Christ Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. I read it for you. This Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, he wasn't going to just hold on to that alone. But instead, it says he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. This is an addition. He takes it on. Born in the likeness of men, how he describes it. Not, not in just some similar way, but, but in the same. That is, he takes on flesh and blood. He partakes in the same things as the preacher of Hebrews would say. And then being found in human form, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. That's the only way it could occur. God is not subject to death. But it is through this incarnation that he becomes subject it. A.W. Pink describes it this way. If we were ever to be made like him, he first had to be made like us. If he was to give us his spirit, he must first assume our flesh. If we are to be so joined unto the Lord as to become one spirit with him, 1 Corinthians 6, that he must first be joined with our flesh so as to be all of one with us. You remember the previous section two weeks ago in Hebrews, it, it talks about, I will come and be with my brothers. I will sing in the midst of their congregation. This is his condescension to us and becoming one of us in that sense. He does that in order not to stay there, but 
to bring us out of there, to bring us up into him. I'll read this for you, or you can look it up. I'll, I'll be using a lot of scriptures, so if you like to turn in your Bible, or if you've got the speed turner in your, in your um, computer device, Otherwise, I'll read it for you. It's from John chapter 17. This is part of the high priestly prayer of Jesus. In John 17, 21, he prays that they, he's speaking about those that are it, given to him by the Father, that they may all be one. A lot of people misunderstand the, the, the thrust of that. It's not so much that they'll get along, although that would be, secondary that would be part of it this is how we do have unity within the church because of our unity in christ but the emphasis here is that what he has designed that is that they may be one just as you father are in me and i in you that they may also be in us that that is the unity that we have in christ because he has came he has become one of us to bring us up to God that we indeed, indeed might be united to him. That the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. That is, in a glorified state before God. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, one with us, one with the triune God. And ultimately in that Union with God, which is visible and expressed and experienced even in this life, that the world might know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. I feel when I read that phrase, John's amazement of it, he is the disciple who Jesus loved. That little simple song the kids live sing is so profound, isn't it? Jesus loves me. Why? It, it is to display his glory. So if we are going to then become partakers of the divine nature, as Peter would describe in 2 Peter 1, 4, if, if we would have this great promise that is granted to us, that we would become partakers of the divine nature and having escaped the corruption that is in this world through sinful desire. He would need to be made one of us. He must be made partaker of human nature. So he takes on humanity with all its weaknesses to fellowship and commune with us. If you're in chapter 2 back in Hebrews, you remember last two weeks ago? Read that section in 11 through 13 that precedes our section today. Look at it. The one who sanctifies, that would be Jesus. Those that are sanctified, those are made holy in him. They all have one source. It is through Jesus. And that's why he's not ashamed to call them Brothers, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of your congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. I and the children God has given me. This is the promises being fulfilled. This is 
the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. He partakes of the same, verse 14. He was in his nature, but he took on the form of humanity that he might be then numbered among us, that he indeed might call us brothers, seeing in the midst of our congregation, point us as an example to God and demonstrate great faith, I and the children. Numbered among us as the federal head of mankind. Isaiah speaks of this in chapter 53 of his prophecy. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. That's us. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And we know from the preaching of Hebrews, he does this forever and ever. So he takes on human flesh and becomes a partaker of humanity. Yet without sin, he takes on our transgressions. He has none. He bore the sins of many. These are others. And why does he do that? Well, he does that in verse 14 of Hebrews 2, that he would destroy the one who has the power of death. Don't misunderstand what he is saying here. God, and we talked about that, by the way, in our soteriology class that Henry taught this morning about the ultimate and proximate cause. If you want clarification, come to class next week and Henry will help you. I'm telling you, it's worth your investment to come. Come here anyway. Come to that hour as well. You'll be greatly benefited for it. But nevertheless, I'll just briefly say simply this, that God uh, recognizes has the final say in both life and death. He is sovereign over all. You'll hear expressions in the Old Testament, for example, Deuteronomy 32, 39. I am he, there's no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. No one can deliver out of my hand. For Samuel 2, 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. Psalm 68, 20. Our God this God of salvation, to him belongs the deliverance from death. So what is he saying then about, in our text in 2.14, that Jesus takes on true human nature to destroy him who has the, the power of death? In what sense does the devil have the power of death if God has the ultimate power because the proximate cause is certainly the devil. He is the source of it. He is the evil one. We talked briefly about this concept of theodicy. Again, I invite you to come next week for that class to get further explanation, the justification of God, if you will. This evil one, the devil, is responsible for evil. Jesus would explain this this way to those that are outside of Christ. He's addressing those 
Jews who were antagonistic to him, but it would certainly, by the way, apply to everyone who is not regenerate, everyone who is not born again, everyone who is not in Christ. He said in John 8, 44, you are from your father, the devil. And it is, and your will is to do your father's desire. What is the father's desire? It is self-will. It's I am Lord, not Jesus is Lord. That's an easy way to think about that. The, the source of that is the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says, and he doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he speaks, he speaks out of his own character, for he is the liar and the father of lies. In that sense, he has the power of death because it is the devil who brought sin into the world. In the temptation of Adam and the fall. Rebellion against God, of course, the penalty is death. Paul would put it this way in 5.12 of Romans. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Adam is our federal head in that sense, but experientially all of us sin and are worthy of death. The power of death here is the ultimate inevitable consequence of sin and rebellion because sin brings forth death. He's going to destroy it, it says, in the incarnation. To destroy, that word itself means the idea of render powerless, inoperative, or to bring to nothing. Death wields a mighty power over mankind. We'll make great sacrifices to avoid this inevitable consequence. But it looms dark like a mysterious cloud of uncertainty. But its appearance is inevitable. And deep down in the spirit of our conscience, our conscience tells us that there is certain judgment after death that awaits. The preacher of Hebrews would put it this way in chapter 9. And just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the, the judgment. This is why Christ came to offer the sin, to bear the sins of many, to deal with them. First John chapter 3, it'll be explained this way. First John 3, 5. He appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either, has either seen him or known him. He's explaining the idea that those that are regenerate don't 
have a continuous lifestyle of sin. Does it mean that they will be sinless in this life? But you might think of it this way, they will sin less. Because when they do, the Holy Spirit will convict them and they'll repent and recognize that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But he goes on and says, don't let anybody deceive you. Whoever practices, uh, whoever practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Just what Jesus said. That's where John got it from. He taught him that that is someone who continues in an unrepentant state demonstrates that they are of the father, the devil. And here's the reason I brought first John chapter three and verse five through eight up. It says the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He's the father of it. And this power of death then is rendered inoperative through Jesus Christ. It doesn't accomplish because Christ has died and paid for those who have their faith and trust in him. Second point, it is not only to destroy those works of the devil, in particular death, but also to deliver the doomed from death. That's verse 15 of chapter 2. Notice the phrase, reason for his incarnation, and to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Mankind naturally fears death. As I mentioned earlier in the hymn, In Christ Alone, we're called to fear God, not death. This, this is a distorted view. Some people will take greater risks in life. But there is always a healthy respect for, for death by those who have their senses and reason about them. But outside of divine revelation, we really don't know what comes next. All we know is that we die and then there's some uncertainty. And for, for many, that creates great anxiety. Fear of death could be helpful to some respect, I guess, to keep people from making dumb choices. Keep from getting too close to the edge of a cliff, for example. Be subject to their own demise. But the text here talks about it as bondage to slavery, if you will. This is a description of the unregenerate mind bound by it. It suppresses the truth that actually awaits them after death by rationalizing it away, creating some other mythology to explain what happens next about future consequences. And therefore, it is this slavery to the fear of death and the unknown that brings about this attitude of living only for today. I think the kids today use the expression, you only live once or something like that. It's just about today. 
no thought of tomorrow. Paul would tell his young disciple Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, understand this, young man, that in the last days there will come times of great difficulty. People will be lovers of self. And by the way, that narcissism, I think that is <laughs> really uh, the root expression of the evil work of the devil. They love themselves first and foremost. They will be God. They will not bow the knee to God. They'll be, it's expressed as lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Oh, they will look like they have an appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. There's nothing really about the heart, really deep down inside in the heart, beyond the facade of what it looks like they are lovers of self. And the warning to his young protege, Timothy, was avoid such people. They have no real fear of God. They fear the cessation of their pleasure, of their stuff. And so people then are abused and they engage in arrogant and unleavened and brutal practices. It's heartbreaking to see what humanity does to other people. I, I could go on. You, you know, you've seen the headlines. You know what's going on. It breaks my heart. And this fear of death is the sense of pushing mortality out of their, their mind by engaging in just gratification for today. They simply push those thoughts out of their mind. But for the Christian, there is no fear of death. There's no fear of sin and death because we are delivered from it. And here I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is through the resurrection of this incarnate Christ that those who are united to him by faith have the fear of death removed. There's no fear in death for those that are in Christ. Because with an unveiled face, you can then behold Jesus Christ. Do you want to see him? Look at it in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll just drop down to verse 30, 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. He's talking about death. What does it mean for those that are in Christ? Well, we have a perishable body, a mortal body, and it must be changed. This mortal body must put on immortality. That, that is the next step for those that are in Christ. When the perishable... <coughs> 
puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come pass, then shall come to pass the saying it is written. And here's what's written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? And so for the for those that are united to Christ, with an unveiled face, they look at the resurrected Christ, and you can cry out, no fear in death. There's no victory in death. There's no sting in death because this perishable must put it away to take on that which is imperishable. This mortal must be changed into that which is immortal. The sting of death, of course, is sin. The power of sin is the law which says you are guilty. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. And where does it come? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. What great joy. You can stand and look at death in the face and have no fear in Christ. Look to yourself. You will be greatly fearful. Look to Christ, your great courage. And in, in your day of death, I'll preach this to you. In mine, I hope you preach it to me. That we will be called to look to Christ. The last word I heard from my father is his response to my question on his deathbed. I asked him from his favorite verse, is his grace sufficient? And his response was, it is sufficient. Look to Christ, beloved, it is sufficient, even in the darkest hour. And based on that, therefore, my beloved brothers, then we can be, what, steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Can I tell you this? Everything else is a certain vanity with it. Transitory, here today, gone tomorrow. None of this is. It's immovable. It stays forever. Jesus took on human flesh to destroy the very works of the devil, the one who had the power of death to deliver us from the fear of death and finally targeted to his children, those that are in Christ, <coughs> this third thing. And I struggle with how to explain this and I have to alliterate because it's just what I do. I'm sorry. But I did struggle with this for uh, all week until... Um, as the, it caused me actually just to sit there and think about this concept for a long time on, on how I would try to communicate it in a pithy way. This verse 16 of chapter 2. He surely, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. I'll unpack that to a degree with the time that remains. But as I, as I would summarize it in a different way to to fit into what we're talking about. Here he takes on human flesh to dwell with the spiritual descendants of Abraham. 
It is to dwell with the descendants of Abraham that are united to Christ by faith. Look at this word, helps. He helps. And it's in contrast to this angels. Remember the whole argument. I mean, I'm pulling out little sections from this bigger message. But he's been going on to, that is the preacher of Hebrews, has been going on to demonstrate that Christ is greater than the angels. Because in their mind, they're thinking, well, he has human flesh, so that isn't that lesser, you know. He, he's already talked about this quotation from Psalm 8 and verses 6 through 8 that we're reminded that Jesus takes on this lower state. It's temporary. The, the destiny, quote-unquote, for mankind, for those that are regenerate in Christ, is that they will be crowned with glory and honor. Verses 6 through 8, quotation from Psalm 8. This state of glorification, crowned, ruling with Christ in a glorified state, it, it comes about through our union with Christ because he has condescended to us, taken on human flesh, and is one of the brothers, if you will, and brings us up here. Angels don't die Jesus does, but he rises from the dead. Here in verse 16 of chapter 2, another angle is brought in to show the necessity of Jesus taking on human nature, which in no way diminishes or minimizes his glory. It might be thought of as veiled. I'm, I'm fine with that, that you don't see the fullness of it. But, it. but it doesn't diminish it. It doesn't take it away. It, there's a temporary aspect to it, but it doesn't take it away. In fact, if you look at it closely, it reveals other facets of his glory. In this case, it is Jesus who is said to do what? To help. He helps Abraham's offsprings. He doesn't help angels. Rebellious angels who rebelled against God, Jesus doesn't help. They're not delivered. They're not saved. They receive justice, the just recompense of the reward. But he helps Abraham's descendants. In a majestic display of his glorious grace, Jesus helps mankind. And the specific reference here is the seed of Abraham, which I'll unpack in a moment. But I want you to notice the word help. That's what we have it translated Epilabanamai, in Greek. It's, it's a word that's translated different ways. But help kind of sounds like, I don't know, kind of given a helping hand. And if that's what you take from it, you've kind of missed it. 
I would prefer it actually be translated this way. He lays hold of. Or he takes hold of. And it isn't a novel translation. You can find the same word in chapter 8 and verse 9. And portrayed visually, if you will, dramatically in time so that we could understand spiritually what's going on from a physical demonstration. And I'll just show you this real quick. If you want to look at it, chapter 8, verse 9. He's talking about the new covenant, which is better. He says, it's not like the covenant, verse eight, chapter 8, verse 9, that I made with the fathers on the day when I, and here's the word, and, it's you, and it is translated out in, in, in a phrase that I think it would actually do well in chapter 2, but it's the same word. I took them by the hand. Do you see that? I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. But they didn't continue in my covenant. I took them out by the hand. That's the idea of help. And you know the story. He, he took them. He, he got them out of physical bondage. It demonstrates what Christ is doing, releasing you from the slavery of sin, of bondage, of a greater bondage. He'll go on to describe this new covenant that he makes. He says, I, I will make it. I'll make it with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And I'll just, just note the I wills here. I will make it. And then he says, I will put my laws in their minds and write them. And, and that would continue on. I will write them. I'm inserting I will, but that's the idea. He, he, I will put them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll, they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's what it means to take them, to take them by the hand. It's demonstrated physically in the deliverance of his people from Egypt. But here he's speaking of it in a spiritual sense. Here is God's sovereign salvation. God is offering more than a plan of salvation. This is why, again, uh, I, I recommend studying it biblically, seeing what the Bible says about this great salvation. It's more than just offering some sort of help and plan. The saving grace of Jesus isn't some sort of plan like a lifeline that's thrown into the sea of depravity for us to hang on to, to participate in the rescue operation. Th that idea comes from the mind of man, and, and I don't want to be too harsh. I understand because if that's how we were doing rescue, we, that's what we would do most of the time. Unless, of course, our subject was in really bad shape or it was a recovery project and they were already dead. This idea of taking hold of, and no illustration is perfect, it 
only some aspects would apply. But if I were thinking about how to talk about this rescue plan, this help, it'd be more like the Coast Guard. Can you imagine? You ever seen clips on what they do? Someone's in great peril. It's dark. You can't see. The waves are too big and the subject is has broken bones and barely alive, dying of hypothermia, cannot make it out on his own. Throw him all the lines you want. He couldn't swim to it. And if he could, he couldn't hold on to it. Instead, what you see in the rescue operation is this big light comes out of the darkness. It shines on this one who is in great peril. And then from the above comes down this rescue swimmer who is fully equipped and trained for the task. And he takes hold of him and brings him back to safety. Now that is far short of what Jesus Christ does, but I think it's slightly closer to the analogy of salvation and the idea of helping. Hence the glory of the rescuer, Jesus Christ, who takes a hold of. And we learn from John, don't we, that he has them in their hand and no one can take them out of his hand. And his father is greater than he and no one can take them out of his father's hand. And this is why no analogies are good enough. This is the rescue of Christ. But who's he going to rescue? What a great rescue to help, to take a hold of, to reach down into the sea of depravity and snatch them up. Who is he going to help? Well, our text here says the offspring of Abraham. We probably aren't that familiar talking in that terminology, but maybe we should be. You'll find the Abrahamic promise in chapter 12 of Genesis. It's described in greater detail in chapter 15 and then confirmed again in chapter 17. But I'll just give you a snippet of it for time's sake. Here God reaches down and grabs a moon worshiper and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great, Genesis 12, so that you will then be a blessing, a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, all, in you all the f- families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a physical reality of a covenant that demonstrates the spiritual truth that is ongoing. Paul would describe this covenant that it is indeed ultimately a covenant of faith. 
What occurs in the drama of the Old Testament is pointing to the reality that is in Jesus Christ. I'll read a couple texts for time, and we'll end on this. And Paul says in Romans 4, this, this descendant of Abraham is the descendant of faith. That the promise, Genesis, in Romans 4, 16, that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. His offspring by faith, those who are of the faith of Abraham who believe. Not only to the inherent of the law, but those who share the faith of Abraham, who in that sense is, as the scripture says, the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom I believe, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. That is who the descendants of Abraham are. He would further detail it to the church at Galatia in Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of the faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles, that's you and me, by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 29 of chapter 3 in Galatians, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's who Jesus takes hold of. I used to teach children when I first came to Christ. They put me in a room and said, here, here's your ministry. Take care of these rambunctious little kids. <laughs> well, if you could get anything through them, you could get anything through anybody. So we had to keep them a little busy. And one of the activities they always loved was songs of motion in them. And maybe we'll have our children's choir do this one just to humor me. I won't do it in its fullness. But you know it, don't you? Deep theological truth out of the mouth of babes. Father Abraham has many sons. Many sons has Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, if you've been born again. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for Christ who took on human flesh, lived, died, rose again, ascended on high, and continues in a mediatorial sense for us to destroy the works of the devil, to deliver us from the fear of death, and to dwell with your people forever and ever. I pray for your blessings. May all of us glorify Christ today. In his name we pray. Amen. Beloved, I'll give you a moment to respond, not to me, but directly to Christ. If you have sin to confess, confess it to him. You know, if you've seen Jesus Christ for the first time in a glorious way, and you wonder whether you are indeed a descendant, spiritual descendant of Abraham, 
Just pray that he would show you his glory. Confess, repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Take a moment to think on these things. in his glory and enjoy the grace and mercy granted to us in Christ our Lord. I pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, I do want to turn my eyes to Jesus, but I don't know the number. Just because, you know, it didn't matter probably what you'd play. I love hymns. I hope they're deep in your heart and they come out at various times in which you need to think on these things. And here is a great hymn to keep a hold of based on, and our it's got 413 in your hymn book from Hebrews 12 too, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. Let's stand and sing together as Jerry leads. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Amen and amen. You're dismissed.